Thank you all. Uh, thank you for uh, the encouragement and the support along the way over the last 10 years. Uh, it's quite a relief to have that burden off of my back. Um, but and, and I'll say I certainly don't expect anybody in here to read my dissertation. I only ask that you read one page of it. And that's the acknowledgments, because it's there that I thank the church, College Heights Baptist Church, the leadership team, and the pastor for all of the support. I could not have accomplished that without you guys praying for me, uh, giving me words of encouragement, asking me about it occasionally. That allowed me to talk about it, uh, because that helps in developing the ideas and being able to articulate it well, which was very important when it came time for my oral defense uh, last Monday. And so I'm just very thankful I wanted to put that in writing so that it was permanently attached to the work itself uh, so you guys are forever solidified on like page one or something like that. So if you want to go read that, uh, I'll post that soon for you. But other than that, if you're just really, really, really bored, uh, you can pick up the whole thing and I can get that to you to read. Um, but it just so happens that chapter five of my dissertation significantly works with 1 Peter chapter 2, which is where we just so happen to be this morning. So you're going to get a little taste of what I've been researching over the past several years. And uh, I've already shared a lot of this with you, but we are looking this morning at how the church is the temple of God and also how the church acts as the royal priesthood of God under the new covenant. So you, if you would turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 1 through 12 this morning. When you find that, go ahead and stand. And then we'll read it together. It says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it is the word that, that sharpens us, that challenges us, that breaks us down, that builds us up. It is the word that's brought us to the point of salvation for all who believe. It's the word that continues to grow us and, Lord, to shape us and mold us into the people that you want us to be. It is by your word, Lord, that we live and have uh, everlasting life. 
Lord, we thank you for it this morning and we trust that it will accomplish your purposes this morning. And Lord, as we lean into it and as we drink from the fountain that you've opened before us, I pray, Lord, that you would remove any error that would come from me, Lord, because we know that your word is flawless. And so, Lord, uh, remove me out of the picture. Lord, remove our thinking as a group out of the picture and just waste us on your will. Let your complete authority be what we immerse ourselves in this morning, willing to submit to anything that you ask of us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Before we dive into this meaty passage, I want to uh, go back to chapter 1 and do a quick review. If you are just a first-time visitor this morning, uh, you will not have been following along. We're going through the book of 1 Peter, and uh, maybe you were here for those, but you've slept since then, uh, or maybe you haven't slept much since then is the problem, uh, since it's summer in July, and uh, we are really busy this time of year. But to review Peter begins his epistle here by calling his readership exiles. And he is talking to multiple churches that are scattered throughout the New World. They're scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, through Turkey, Asia Minor, Greece, Rome. These churches that are blossoming up across the country are are not the majority. They are the minority. They're very isolated groups of believers that are responding to the word of God. And so Peter writes to encourage them. But as he encourages them, he calls them exiles. And the word exile is very meaningful for people who read the Bible because the Old Testament people of God were exiles. They were taken out of their homeland. They were dispersed into strange and foreign places. And because of that, they had the word exile was very meaningful. And so one of the things Peter's doing by calling them exiles is to remind them that God's with them even though they're dispersed, but also to remind them that they are, there is continuity between them and the Old Testament people of God. And that theme is going to come up again and again in Peter's work because he is demonstrating in his writing that the New Testament is not some new thing that's completely disassociated and detached from the Old Testament, but rather the whole thing expresses itself in a continuous way. You could view it more like a flower where the Old Testament is the stem and the root or in the seed, but as it grows, the New Testament becomes the blossom and the flower with the fruit. And, and it's all been leading up and building up to this point. And Peter is showing us that the church and Christ are the fulfillment of many Old Testament themes, people, places, and expressions. And so he uses Old Testament terminology to link the New Testament people of God and the Old Testament people of God together. He moves on in chapter 1 to call the New Covenant people of God, these Christians, born-again believers. And he uses that phrase multiple times to express that they have been recreated. The Messiah was expected to come and to bring recreation, new creation, and he's doing that in his people. He's recreating them so that they can overcome the nature in which people existed, which is a sin nature, a nature that is unable to please God, a nature that prevents us from approaching God and from having relationship with God the Father. Jesus has caused believers to be born again so that now, without sin, they can enter into the presence of God and have communion with him. 
He tells them because of this in chapter 1 that they should live godly lives despite the suffering and pressure from the alien world. They should live righteously. Even though they don't fit in and even though that that brings consequences and repercussions, they should still honor God no matter what the cost. They should honor God in righteousness so that the world sees that they are indeed different than the rest of society. They are aliens. They are strangers. But they are as they represent God Almighty. And most importantly, I would say Peter emphasizes that all of this change that's coming about in these people of God is a direct result of the word. The word of God, he says in 1 Peter, was brought down by the prophets and it was passed on to them. And now God has raised up preachers to go and to preach the gospel in these various communities. Which is why we see pockets of Christianity beginning to flourish. It's because the word of God has reached the ears of people in these remote places. And as the word of God is spreading, so is the church of God. The church is being built on the word. And so the word becomes the basis for all that Peter talks about. And he gets right into his passage with that thought in mind. He says in chapter 2, So, now it's very unfortunate that we allow chapter divisions to interrupt the flow of thought. That's why we cut off at the end of chapter 1. We start at chapter 2. It, they're helpful. I'm glad they're there. It would have been very annoying to have to wait for all of you to open your scrolls and to find where I'm at without any chapter divisions whatsoever. That would have been very annoying. So I'm glad they're there, but don't allow it to disconnect. This is one letter. Chapter divisions were not a part of the original writing. And Peter was going from one thought to another. He's going from all those things we just talked about right into this and says, So, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Because you are the people of God. Because you have been raised up by the word. Because you are to live godly lives as exiles and sojourners. Put away these practices. It's not befitting for the people of God to live this way. And he challenges them to grow up into salvation. He says, put on your salvation pants that you've now received. Grow up. And you do so by leaning into Christ like newborn infants who long for spiritual milk. And that spiritual milk there is uh, most likely a reference back to the word of God in this context. Because you are the people of God, lean into the word of God and soak it up so that you can put away these practices, so that you can honor God with your life. And he says to do this like newborn infants who crave milk. Paul uses the word milk and he talks about milk and sometimes he uses it in a condescending way. He tells the people that they should be eating meat, but instead they're on milk. Peter's not using it like that. Here Peter is saying you should have the same desire for the word that a newborn infant has for its milk. I have a baby in the home right now, and that baby likes milk. And if he wants milk, you know that he wants milk. He will cry for milk. He will scream for milk. He will literally slam his head on the ground for milk if it doesn't arrive in about 3.2 seconds from the time that he started crying for milk. Christian, cry for milk. Cry for the word. Scream for the word. And if need be, bang your head against the wall for the word. You should desire it. It should be that much of a desire to you as milk is to that little baby in my house. 
But yet too often the Bible sits on the shelf collecting dust and it's right there and we are able to access it and we don't. Now, if I were to put a bottle of milk in the middle of the living room floor, my child could crawl to it, my child could start to grapple with it, but probably could not get it up and put it in his mouth by himself right now. He needs mom or dad or someone else to take the bottle and to stick it in his mouth and to hold it there as he consumes his milk. And maybe you're like that. Maybe you're a new Christian, new to the faith. You pick up the Bible and it makes absolutely no sense to you. That's okay. We all start there. But now's the time to have something, to cry out for somebody to help you understand it. Like the Ethiopian eunuch who's like, I don't understand this. Can, can someone explain it to me? And he got help. And once you get enough help, then you can begin to pick the bottle up on your own. You begin to feed yourself and you begin to grow by it. But whatever it takes to get you on the path to spiritual maturity, this morning is the morning to start that quest. This is the day to lean into Christ so that you can grow up into your salvation and stop being a baby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So this morning, as that's kind of like the intro to the passage, but we're going to start to dive into what does it mean when he's describing the church as the temple? What does that mean? How does that look? How are we the temple of God? And so before I say anything, I wish we had time to like do a whole Old Testament survey of what the temple was and what it meant and what happened inside of it, but... We just have to give a cursory glance and highlight a point or two about the temple. The temple is the place where heaven and earth intersect. That's something we need to know. It's where God's domain and the created domain merge together into one. And it culminated in the temple. It wasn't the first place that this happened. Originally, that happened in Eden. The Garden of Eden was the place where God would meet with humanity. It was the place that God communicated his will to humanity. And God's idea for humanity was to multiply and fill the earth. They were to expand this sacred space of Eden to fill the entire world like it looks in the book of Revelation at the end of time. That was their duty. But because of sin, they failed the task. And so it goes on to other places. Bethel, Jacob comes to a place called, well, he comes to a place and he sees a ladder or a stairway that connects heaven and earth and he calls it Bethel because it's the house of God. That's what Bethel means. And so he says, this is a place where heaven and earth intersect. This is a sacred space. And later on, Moses comes and sees a burning bush. This is a place called Sinai. And there he uh, is told to take off his sandals because he's standing on sacred or holy ground. It's a place where heaven and earth intersect and where God is meeting with humanity on this created planet so that he can conveal or reveal his will and his way. And then we see it pop up again in Mount Sinai. He comes back to Sinai when he gets the, the Israelites and leads them out of Egypt. They come back to the same place where the burning bush was. And there he receives the Ten Commandments. And God establishes the blueprint for the tabernacle, which is where sacred space is going to be going forward. And so we have this place where heaven and earth intersects. And it's inside of the curtain of the Holy of Holies inside of the tabernacle. And that eventually results in the temple a permanent structure where the Holy of Holies is the place where heaven and earth intersect. 
And whenever you see the word temple in the Bible, usually when it's referring to Christians being the temple, when Paul says that you are the temple of God, they're using the word naos, which is a Greek word that means the holy of holies. Not just the whole temple precinct, but that very holy place. He's saying, you, the church, are the place where heaven and earth meet. And right now you may feel like, uh, that can't be, you can't be talking about me because that's a pretty holy place. It is a very holy place, and you are that. Whether you feel that way or not, that's what the passage is conveying. And so think about that. Think in terms of heaven and earth aligning as we go through this passage. And so the first thing we're going to see, though, in this temple construct is that Jesus is the base. Jesus is the base. We'll look here in... Come on, thing. Come on, thing. Oh, no, not technology. <laughs> Here it goes. Sorry, it's a new iPad. This morning it was going dark on me in the middle of the sermon. And I was like, oh, I should have, should have not used it right off. Okay, we're going to look in verse 4. And it says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Right away it calls Jesus the living stone. He's not a just piece of rock out in Jerusalem somewhere, but rather he is a living stone. He is able to be all places at all times because he is an omnipresent God, Jesus Christ. And because of that, he is able to be here in our presence right here, right now. And the Bible tells us that that is the case. Jesus Christ is uniquely here right now in our presence as that stone, as that living stone. And it goes on to say down in verse 8, for it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Okay, the word stone comes out a lot. If you're ever reading your Bible and you get a repeated word over and over and over like that, you might want to circle it or highlight it because that means it's significant. And Peter is obviously playing off of the word stone to communicate a theological point. And the word stone is very important to the Old Testament writers, which is why Peter is quoting them here. He gives three different passages where the word stone is used, and that's just scratching the surface because stone is very important to the Jewish religion, the Jewish text, to the rabbinical way of thinking. Uh, you can get through all of these ancient writings and see that they really emphasize this stone motif through it all, and Peter is just drawing off of it. And so not only is Jesus considered the stone, not a stone, but the stone, but then it defines what stone we're talking about, and he is the cornerstone. And the cornerstone is this concept in the Old Testament that is very closely associated with the building of God's kingdom and the building of God's temple. And so if we look back at the Isaiah passage, he quotes, he says, Behold, I am laying a, in Zion a stone. Zion is the holy place. Zion became the word that was familiar with where the kingdom of God was rooted, like the capital. That was the place in Jerusalem where the king would dwell. And it was also the place where the temple was built. The house of David and his descendants was very close to, to the temple where it was built. In fact, there, 
oftentimes they'll kind of merge the idea of the monarchy and the temple together into one. Some of the, the messianic prophecies in the prophets talk about a, a prince or a king who will sit as priest in the temple because they're looking forward to this messianic figure who will one day come and restore both kingdom and temple together. The book of Zechariah is just filled with that language. The book of Ezekiel is filled with that language. And so Peter is saying, hey, all that stuff that you guys have been waiting for, it's being fulfilled before our very eyes. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But then he moves from the book of Isaiah to the Psalms. And this is one of the most prominent psalm, psalms in the Bible. It shows up in a lot of literature from uh, ancient Israel. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Psalm 118 because I want to read this in its context so that you can see how Peter is drawing from a greater context than what's listed, which this is a very common thing. Sometimes when New Testament authors quote a passage of Scripture, they know that you as the reader are familiar with the overall context. And so rather than write out the entire thing, they just give a snippet because, you know, they're writing apparatuses were very valuable. It was costly to have these animal skins and these uh, papyrus plants and all the things that they were using to record and document uh, this literature on. So they would just give a snippet and know that you as the reader would understand the greater context. So let's look at Psalm 118. Verse 19 it says, open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the feastal sacrifice with, with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, even though um, many attribute this psalm as a writing of Asaph or some other figure. Many of the rabbinic uh, writings associate this with David. And one of the reasons they associate it with David is they believe that it is a psalm that follows David's return to Israel after he was exiled, after he was kicked out by his son Absalom. So Absalom comes in as the son of David, and he says, I'm going to be the king. And King David is on the run for a significant period of time while his son rules in his place. But eventually Joab comes in and kills Absalom. David is brought back into the kingdom, and it is believed that he took a certain route. Uh, there's even some you know, theological names for this route that David takes. And as he comes in, they believe he went through the gates of righteousness, which is why verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. David is on his way back to his kingdom, 
And one of the first things he's going to do is stop at the house of God and make sacrifice. One of the first things he's going to do is to meet back up with the priests that did not abandon him and forsake him. And they're going to make offerings to God because God has reinstituted David's throne. And so as he's coming into this place, uh, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. So God has answered David's prayer during this time of uh, rebellion. And it says the stone that the builders rejected. So the people of Israel that turned their back on King David and embraced the kingship of his son, it's them that it's talking about here. They have rejected David, who is the cornerstone. But God is reestablishing it. And that's why it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They bless him from the house of the Lord. This is the priest's calling out a blessing upon David as he's coming to the tabernacle to make the sacrifices. Because of this, this passage was used in commemorating uh, the Maccabean Rebellion. Whenever the Seleucid Empire had come and set up a you know, false altar inside of the temple and they had kind of taken over Israel, well, once the Maccabee, the Jewish people, had revolted and cleansed and purified the temple precinct, they would use Psalm 118 to commemorate that event. And so every year during their celebration of Hanukkah, they would use Psalm 118 in conjunction with that because they believed it was similar to David coming back into the temple. Well, lo and behold, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Passion Week, it is then that they quote this same Thing. They end up saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. Because Jesus was taking the same route as David as he entered back into the temple. He was coming into the temple and they expected him to come in and do the same thing David did. To take up the kingdom. Even though he had been maybe rejected by the rest of the people, he was coming back in and he was that cornerstone. In fact, Matthew even quotes this passage during that event, during uh, the triumphal entry. He quotes this. And so we see this aligned throughout. And Jesus is depicted as the cornerstone because he is the messianic heir. He is the one upon whom the kingdom rests. He is the one upon which the temple will be built and restored. And this is all to fulfill the prophecies of Ezekiel, to fulfill the prophecies in Zechariah, and many other places in the Old Testament scripture. Jesus is the cornerstone. These passages are concerned with Zion, the place where heaven and earth meet. They're concerned with salvation against death and other alliances. Um, in Isaiah, the passage of the cornerstone is to compare the few people who are embracing God against the rest of the nation who are embracing the power of Egypt and Assyria and other countries. They're putting their trust in the sword rather than in the Lord. And God is saying, those who are connected to the Lord the cornerstone, those are the ones who will survive this. And so people like Daniel and Ezekiel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are taken away into captivity, they continue to have their trust established in Yahweh. And Yahweh delivers them time and time again. But those who do not put their trust in him, they are swept away by swift judgment when the Assyrians and Babylonians come and make war. Psalm 118 is associated with David, it's associated with God's house, and it's associated with restoration. And so we look and see that the church is built upon the foundation 
of Jesus Christ. And your temple status as the place where heaven and earth intersect is rooted in the fact that Christ is here and he is the foundation of our faith. Since he is here, God is present. And since God is present, it is the house of the Lord. That unique presence of God is what characterizes sacred space. If the temple was built and God didn't come dwell in it, then it's not, there's nothing sacred about it. It's just a bunch of rocks stacked up. It might look nice, but there's nothing special about it. But Jesus is promising you that if you have put your faith and trust in him, then this morning you are rooted and connected to him, the cornerstone, and the very presence of God is here in your midst. But not only is Jesus the base in Peter's epistle, but Christians are the building blocks. Jesus is the base, the foundation, but Christians are the building structure. Let's look back at the text, and it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, or a house of the Spirit. You yourselves are being built up as the temple. You living stones. You say, okay, I'm a living stone. Well, who else was a living stone? Well, it just said in verse 4 that Jesus is a living stone. So Jesus is a living stone and you are like living stones. You are miniature cornerstones in a sense. You are supposed to be connected to Christ and connected to each other just like the temple would have had blocks and rocks that were stacked up on top of one another and came to a corner where the cornerstone held it all together. Some passages refer to the headstone, and you might think of like a pyramid where at the top there's a capstone that kind of links it all together. The Jewish people interchanged cornerstone and headstone, so you don't need to wonder which one is it. It's both and the same. The idea is that Jesus links us all together as one. But Peter's doing something here. He's calling you the same thing that he's calling Jesus meaning that you should look like Jesus. If Jesus is righteous, then you should be righteous. Last week, Pastor Roy said that we should be holy as he is holy. That was the passage that came uh, in chapter 1. And so, Jesus is the living stone. You should look like him. You say, well, I don't look like him. Well, you should look like him. Okay, whatever in your life doesn't look like him, quit that and start looking like him. And I know... I know we're never going to live up to the standard of Jesus perfectly, but every single day of your life, that should be your number one ambition. Wake up every morning and say, Lord, let me look a little more like you today. Let me be a little more like the Son of God today, because that's my high, high calling. He is a living stone, and I'm supposed to be a living stone. Jesus was called a living stone that was chosen and precious. And in verse 9, it says that, but you are a chosen race. It's the same word, chosen. And then in the word, uh, in verse 7, it says, so the honor for you who believe. The word honor is basically just a different version of the word for precious. It's the same root word, honor and precious. And so you're given the same attributes, the same description as Jesus is. He's precious and chosen. You're precious and chosen. He's a living stone. You're a living stone. Be like Christ. That's the call of Peter in this text. But he doesn't stop there. 
He says you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so he calls you a spiritual house, meaning you are the temple. But he goes on to say that you are the priesthood as well. You're not just the temple of God, you're the priesthood of God. If it wasn't enough for you to be the very place where heaven and earth intersect, you're also the group of people that are responsible for mediating that presence to the rest of the world. For the people who can't come in and they can't see the Shekinah glory of God, you are responsible for taking the presence of God to those people. You're not just the form of the temple, but you're the function of the temple both form and function alike the temple if you were just the temple you were just it would just be an ontological reality something that you are something to be but you're not just something to be you're something to do you're called to do something not just be something so you are the temple that's a fact about who you are but you're called to do you're called to go you're called to mediate the very presence of God to the world. So if you don't find yourself doing that, maybe it's time you wake up and answer the call that God has placed upon you. Jesus was a living stone, and you are to be a living stone who mediates the presence of God to the world. It says not only that, but you are to make spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I thank God that that does not mean that you bring in, you know, sheep and goats and up here at the altar on our beautiful carpet, you slice their throat and you spread the blood everywhere and you burn up the body where smoke comes in here. I'm glad that that's not the sacrifices we're called to make. If it were, we'd do it. Because it's the call of God. But he has not called you to that. He has called you to make spiritual sacrifices. It starts with sacrificing self. Saying, not my will. It doesn't matter what I want to do with this day. It matters what you want to do with this day, God Almighty. It doesn't matter what, you, what I want myself to do in the future. It doesn't matter if I want to live in Alaska or Nebraska or Hawaii or Florida, but where you want me to go, what you want me to do, what you want me to say, that's what we're called to do and that's what we should do. That's what it means to sacrifice self. You are called to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are being built up as a spiritual house as we lean into Christ through the word. It challenges us to that. But not only is Jesus the base and Christians the building, but belief is the bond. Look in verse 7. In verse 7, it says, So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling. And a rock of offense. You see, for those who believe, belief is what connects you to the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Belief is what puts both feet on the solid foundation and unites you to him. There's a theological doctrine which I believe is foundational to all other doctrines. And it is the doctrine of union with Christ. It is through union with Christ that you experience salvation. It is through union with Christ that you experience Christian growth. It is through union with Christ that you experience the resurrection from the dead. It is through union with Christ that you take on this temple identity and you 
can actually say that I am the holy temple of God where heaven and earth meet as a, as a church. Don't say that about yourself personally, but as a church gathering, we can sit here and say that this is the place where heaven and earth intersect. Why? Because I am united to Christ through faith. He is in me, and the Bible says that I am in him. And I don't even know what that means completely, but I know it's a union. And through that union, many of the attributes of the Son of God are bestowed upon me as the believer. Attributes that I don't deserve. He calls me holy. He calls me righteous. He calls me son. And I don't deserve any of it. But I'm united to one who does. And so through that, I get to be the temple and I get to do the work of the priesthood. But it is through belief. And while we're on it, Belief does not just attach you to the Savior as the cornerstone, but it attaches you to the other building blocks in the structure. So if you've got this me and Jesus alone mentality, that is as ungodly as it comes. You cannot serve God on an island. You are connected not only to Christ, but to other people. That's why the first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. You love God, and as a result of that, you love others. And particularly those within the body of Christ. They are your brothers and sisters in the faith. We are a church body being built up together with unique spiritual gifts that complement one another and, and unite together for the mission of Jesus Christ to reach the world with his glory. But if you like to do it alone, then you need to confess of that sin today. That's sinful. Find a way to love the person next to you and in front of you and behind you. Find a way to serve with the person next to you and in front of you and behind you. Find a way to pray together. Find a way to love together. Find a way to honor God together because that is the high calling of Jesus Christ. You are living stones that are linked together by a common faith. But not only do we see that Jesus is the base and Christians are the building and that belief is the bond but that lordship is the barrier. That same passage we just read said that honor is for those who believe, but for those who do not believe. It says it becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, for us is salvation if we believe. But if you don't believe, he's in your way. He's slowing you down. He's a rock of burden to you. And the world expresses that day in and day out. It expresses it in the laws that they pass. It expresses it in the conflicts that are arising day in and day out in the, in the public square. Christ is either going to be your saving rock or a stumbling block. It's one of the two. It can't be both. You can't have one foot on the cornerstone and one foot in the world because that would make you a leaning wall. And the Bible says in Isaiah that God is going to hold a plumb line up to the wall to see if it is straight and righteous. And if it is not, he's going to tear it down. The book of Amos says the same thing. And for those of you that think that you can live with one foot on the solid rock and one foot in the shifting sand, you're deceived. Jesus is going to be a rock of stumbling to you. It's uneven. The foundation 
isn't solid and it's not flat. And you will find yourself flat on your back during the time of crisis. You will, you will eventually desert the Lord Jesus if you are not firmly attached to him through faith. Some people want Jesus as their Savior, but they don't want him as their Lord. Yes, they want deliverance on the eternal day, but they do not want to submit to him as their authority right here and right now. You can't compartmentalize Jesus into Savior and Lord. It's all or it's nothing. And today's the day for you to make that choice. The last thing we see in this passage, not just that Jesus is the base, that Christians are the building, that belief is the bond, that lordship is the barrier, but that mediation is the business. We've already talked about this some, but I want to use that as the point to cover the last section of this text in verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's so much in this that we could spend weeks just going over it again and again and again. Uh, but I want to focus on just a couple of things. It starts out by saying, you are a chosen race. Man, if there was ever a time for this passage to be illuminated by the people of faith, it's now. The race relationships we see around the world are crumbling. There is tension at every corner about the ethnic divide that permeates the land. And the church has an answer right here. That within the kingdom of God, at least, I don't know what to tell the people outside of the kingdom of God, but inside of the kingdom of God, there's but one race, and it's the race of God's children. There is no Jew, there is no Gentile, and for anybody within the kingdom of God that makes those distinctions with any sort of negativity or any sort of prejudice, how ungodly. Because you are called as brothers and sisters. That person that sits across from you that's from a different ethnic background biologically, they are in the same family as you by faith. You're bound together. You're both living stones. You're both under the headship of Jesus Christ. You're both bound for the same eternity. And yet you make a judgment against them. That You can't do that. We are one family. We are one race. If someone ever asks you what your race is, just say, my race is the family of God. That's the race. That's my background. You are a royal priesthood, emphasizing your priestly duty again. That's why your business is mediation. You are to go and to take the good news. You are to take the glory of God through his word. And you're to go and expound upon that. You are to live that out. You are to share that. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, what is Peter doing right here? He's calling them all these things. And he's not coming up with this on the fly. He is quoting Old Testament passages. I believe it's Exodus 9, 6, that where God tells the Israelites that they are called to be a nation of priests. He's not talking to the Levites there. He's not talking to Aaron's line who become the priest. He's saying you guys as a whole, as an entire nation, I'm calling you to be a nation of priests. He calls them to go and to mediate the presence of God. He's going to establish a sacred space where God meets 
with humanity, where heaven and earth intersect. And he's calling on the Israelites to live in such a way that they would attract and draw in people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and where they would gather around the throne of God Almighty. But they fail in their task. They fail. And so Jesus comes as corporate Israel in one figure. He lives out what they should have done. He lives it out perfectly. And he becomes the fulfillment of that king-priest operative. And he goes and he lives a perfect life and says, all authority is given to me, so now I'm sending my priests into the world. Which, by the way, when Jesus says that at the end of Matthew... That reflects the end of the Jewish Bible. At the end of the Jewish Bible, Cyrus, when he's releasing the Israelites back, he sends them back and he says, all authority is given to me. Go up to Israel and rebuild the temple. It's my paraphrase, but that's what he's saying. Some of the same terminology is used there. And Jesus ends his, or Matthew ends his very Jewish gospel with the same words, more or less. And Jesus says, all authority is given to me. Go up into all the world and build the temple. You living stones, go and build it up. Peter would have been the audience that day. He would have heard that. He would have heard when Jesus said, upon this rock, I build my church. And Peter turns around and writes and says, he is the rock. He's the cornerstone. I'm a rock. You're a rock. We're all rocks in our faith, but we're built upon the rock Jesus Christ. And that rock is so significant and meaningful in the rabbinical literature and some of the Jewish uh, writings that have surfaced. We see that this rock was thought of as a very holy place. It's thought of as the rock that caused the chaotic waters in Genesis 1 to subside and to, to result in just streams that flow out and give life. It is the same streams that flow out and give life that are thought to run underneath the eschatological temple in the book of Ezekiel. So the cornerstone is there. It's capping. It's like the stopper you put in the bathtub. It keeps the water uh, from coming up and it causes it to result in streams of life. The same streams that we see in Revelation where it says that the waters will go out and it'll be the tree of life growing beside them and it'll provide life for the people of God. It's probably why Jesus called himself the living water and the Holy Spirit, the living water, and that we are to provide that living water to the world. Because the, the capstone, the cornerstone, has put an end to all chaos. He has finished the task. He has brought peace and order because all authority rests in his hands. And as the people of God, we get to participate in it, not by your own strength, but by your union with him. It says that you are called to be all these things that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. That is the task. Go and proclaim the excellencies of your cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Declare the praises may be another way of expressing that. Go out today and declare the praises of your Lord, Jesus. That is your task that is your duty. That is your high calling. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this high calling. We thank you that you have given us the equipment we need in the word of God and in the person of Christ and through his Holy Spirit to be the temple of God. We thank you that you've called us to be the place where heaven and earth intersect. We thank you that you've called us to glorify you. 
Though, Lord, we fall so short of that calling, day by day we know that you renew us day by day and that through our connection to you we have ongoing hope and ongoing life. Lord, we thank you that you have just... uh, you have been there with us and that you are the very presence of God in our midst every time we gather. And Lord, that your Holy Spirit is in our midst even when we're apart, Lord, as he dwells within each believer. I pray, Father, that you would forgive us where we fail you, but Lord, today that you would rise us up, call us to honor you in ways that we've not thought of before. Let us be sacrificial and make that offering that you've called us to make. And we ask it all in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.